Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. On today's episode, I'm going to be joined by Tracy Primo. Tracy is a retired shift manager from Bruce Power. She was the first female or female identifying ANO at Bruce A, and also the first female shift manager at Bruce A to make her way up from the field. And when I say the field, I mean as an operator in training, she made her way up as an operator and then a control room operator and then eventually to the shift manager position. Tracy and I are going to discuss women representation in STEM fields, specifically nuclear, but also just in general. And we're also going to discuss Indigenous issues, including reconciliation. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. So thanks so much for joining me today, Tracy. If you wouldn't mind um, taking a few moments just to introduce yourself for my listeners. Sure, Sheila. So I, I'd like to take an, the opportunity just to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the traditional lands of the treaty territory, treaty territory of the people of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation which includes the Chippewas of Maywash, Unseated First Nation, and the Chippewas of Saugeen First Nation. I myself am a member of Nipissing First Nation, which stretches from North Bay to West Nipissing along the shore, North Shore of Lake Nipissing. So I have been in the nuclear industry for 31 years. I started out as an operator in training in 1990 at the Pickering Station. I came to Bruce A in 95, uh, where I uh, later became an authorized nuclear operator um, and then a, a shift manager, which is uh, where I re the position I retired from um, just a month ago. Uh, so I have I have been involved in the nuclear industry for a long time in the production of power, uh, and but I'm am also involved in women in nuclear. I sit on their board, and um, and and have recently joined the Ontario Power Generation Board as well. So I have a lot of um, knowledge about the industry, and then of course being Indigenous. Um, you know, I have um, some thoughts about uh, about um, conversations and and you know reconciliation that I'm happy to share with you. Awesome, yeah, we've got uh, I've got an extensive list of things to try to squeeze in today. Um, so I guess my first question is like, what made you interested in sciences and STEM and specifically nuclear? Like, as a woman in nuclear as well, I know it's not it's still not a very common field for women. Um, I feel like it's probably changed a lot since when you started, but I still feel like women are very much underrepresented in the field. Um, so what was it that drew you to nuclear? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was always really good at math and science, but um, in high school, I actually wanted to be a history teacher. Um, my high school chemistry teacher was pretty disappointed by that because I had really high mark in his class. Uh, and when I attended the University of Waterloo, I was fortunate enough to be in the co-op program and um, which gave me the opportunity to spend some time teaching high schoolers. And I uh, very quickly found out that that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, I was also really good at computers. So this was 1986 and programming was a pretty new um, item to major in. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job as a TA in the uh, computer science department. And around this time, I, I thought about switching from arts to math or engineering. but um, you know, I, I was really tired of kind of living on macaroni and tomatoes and I wanted to enter the workforce. So I was always the type of student who was really interested in being the top of the class. And 
um, and I, I appreciated that STEM was not a subjective path. It was always uh, clear how to, how to get there. So my, mm-hmm. my dad was a mechanic in the nuclear industry. He worked, um, he trained as a machinist and he worked at Bruce A. Uh, and started working there when I was three. I, I often say that nuclear has been feeding my family for over 50 years. Um, he pointed out the op- this opportunity in operations to me, and I, I wasn't sure about the field work, but the control room looked really cool. And I, I at the time, was watching a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation, and um, and I could imagine myself saying, you know, make it so, number one. <laughs> so, so um you know, I was either switching majors from arts to math um, or getting a job. And um, and I was newly married. Uh, my husband was also starting his career. So I, I took the opportunity to um, start to work for Ontario Hydro, where I've been paid to learn for, for um, you know, the past 31 years. Mm-hmm. That's funny, actually. That sounds not identical to kind of my, obviously, I'm, I'm not... Uh anywhere near retirement yet unfortunately but <laughs> um some days I wish I was um because I was the same I originally was studying law and then I switched to education and I was a teacher for a little bit and the same very quickly decided that was not for me <laughs> yeah, um yeah. and yeah always was interested in math and science and for some reason didn't pursue that to begin with and then yeah it was the same I always used to say and my husband's an operator at Bruce Power too he always used to joke that I would go to school forever if somebody else would pay me to go and I kind of feel like I've won that lottery right now and if I am correct were you the, the first woman to be an ANO I was the first uh, authorizing operator at Bruce A yeah, oh, okay. that's correct that's that's impressive that's impressive is it the same then with shift manager were you the first woman shift manager no, but I was the first female shift manager who came from the shop floor. Oh, Previous okay. ones had come from um, the engineering or physics department. Okay. Yeah, and it's not very often that we have operators that work their way up to shift manager. There's not a whole lot of them. No, unfortunately, because it really does bring a different dynamic to the team. It, it, it truly does. I think it truly does. When you have lived and breathed the field, it, it makes it very different. So then how did you find like working and the quote unquote climbing the ladder in the, in the male dominated workforce that you were in? So when I started, there was, uh, there wasn't a lot of women on my shift. There was one other female operator, control tech. And I, and I think a woman in the lab, there was no one in the control room or in leadership positions at all. We used to take breaks in the construction office when we were refueling unit two and um, the walls were covered in pinups. Uh, the biggest difference that was kind of pointed out or, or made into a, a conversation piece was the physical, like physical strength and height for me. I'm not a very tall woman. So I became really creative on, um, you know, getting to where I needed to go, climbing pumps, or pipes, or using my body strength um, to operate valves. And uh, as time went on, it became clear that my gender and size was often a win when they needed someone to go inside a water box or a steam drum or a boiler and, and I could fit in and stand up inside. And then another thing was, you know, uh, working in a nuclear plant while, while pregnant. So, you know, I had different experiences there in my, with my first son, I, I, I was the first person to ever, you know, the first woman on their shift. And of course the first to be pregnant, it was, I was basically shunned, but, but, uh, you know, less than five years later with my, my second son, I was, um, you know, I remained a part of the team right up until the birth of my, 
up, up until his birth and was fully supported. So just in that short time, you know, uh, opinions changed uh, somewhat. I yeah. will say it was, it was important that I was better than the guys to get the same amount of respect. You know, when I started in the early 90s, there was a shift manager who refused to have a woman on his crew and an authorized nuclear operator who refused to have one on his unit, working on his unit. And and that was considered okay. You know, that was, that was, that was allowed. I was challenged uh, that I was taking a man's job and not looking after my husband. Women tend to kind of take on different personalities to fit in, whether it was like being one of the guys or, or acting like a mom. And I, I, I would say, I think we're probably going to talk about this a little bit, Sheila, is that, you know, I, things have changed thank yeah. god <laughs> dramatically since since then it, it's it's funny though i i think overall they they have for sure there's there's definitely more women there's only well in our i'm unit zero operator so there's two of us on our crew two women i've never really experienced anything where it's like oh sheila's a girl but like there there are things that you know, there's super huge valves that I cannot open, <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of like, okay, you're gonna have to come with me. Like, but I've never, I've never shied away from that either. I've never been one to, you know, struggle in silence. I'm like, Hey, you, we got to go. <laughs> I'm going to need your help today. And I've been really lucky. The guys on our crew have always been phenomenal. You know, you do still get the odd, the odd stereotype of, Oh, woman, you don't really belong here. But luckily those are few and far between. Most of the guys are pretty good. I've, I'm, I have a phenomenal crew personally. They're, they're great. I can't say a bad thing about them. I'm really lucky that way. How did you find that changed throughout your career? The, the women representation and the dynamic, like, did you find that it has gotten a lot better? It improved a little bit. So definitely, you know, the misogyny that I experienced would never be tolerated today in, in uh, any, any company and in, in, in the industry. You know, now there's, there are female leaders in the industry to look up to, and there are operators who would look to me and, and ask for mentorship, knowing that that's where they wanted to get to, whether it was the, the control room or management. And, and I would also say that diversity is, for a long time, has been thought as uh, the right thing to do because it's treating gender and, you know, visible minorities, indigenous people equal, but but now uh, what I hear from a lot of um, senior leadership in, in our industry is that that they now are, are truly embracing the fact that it's necessary in order for you to be successful financially in the industry. So the more diversity that you have um, at all levels, the better uh, your company is going to uh, do in, in, in the bottom line. So I would say that um, the entry level opportunities are much increased. Um, interview teams now are mandated to be diverse uh, to ensure we, we don't continue to have people just hire people who look like them. But all that being said, the nuclear industry is lagging behind other industries like finance and retail in senior leadership positions. Yeah, I would agree. I, From what I've heard, I obviously didn't experience the field when women just started entering the industry, but I would say now, yeah, I would agree that it's a leadership. You know, I can count on one hand <laughs> the number of female managers that I've encountered and I think it's you <laughs> I think that's I think you're the only one but yeah it's it's sad and like why do you think that is why do you think that there is a lack of women representation in senior management or senior leadership I think specifically to the nuclear power industry uh the utilities is the fact that in order to be a senior manager you have have you 
are expected to have been licensed. And um, the certification program is not, you know, set up in a great way for women. If you're in, if you're having your if you're having your children, it's in either during um, or after. You know, you have to spend a lot of time getting relicensed or taking breaks and and redoing um, sections and 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 of course, there's the shift work piece. Uh, you know, once you get certified, you you couldn't lose the opportunity to get a day job because you're so needed. Um, I I think that that has a lot to do with the power side, the nuclear utilities. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you have to be licensed to to kind of um, get to those senior levels. And um, but but I will say that um, I will say that, you know, it it's still kind of got that old boys club at the senior level up where where people tend to hire other people that they know in the industry or um, have, um, you know, golfed with or hung out with. I mean, that's that's definitely um, happening more in tech, uh, I would say. Um, STEM, the STEM field than it is in other fields um, where you do see CEOs, um, female CEOs leading, leading um, corporations. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one thing that I do find really, I don't want to say impressive, but I'll say impressive (laughs) about the NWMO is that they're very much female led. Their CEO is a woman. They have a lot of females that are working there that I've seen. Um, I've talked to a lot of them, even I don't want to say in the field, but like on the ground, a lot of their um, engagement communications, people that I've met with are, are females. Uh, the VP of site selection is now a female. They've got a lot of strong women there doing their thing. And I find it interesting, even the community led groups that are talking about the DGR, like I myself running, willing to listen, protect our waterways is ran by Michelle Stein, you know, a strong woman. A lot of the environmental groups that we see are run by women it's, it's actually crazy how many, how many women are, you know, stepping up to kind of take the reins and see what happens with this. I would agree with you. And I, I would, I agree with you about the NWNO leadership makeup, you know, Lori's been there for a long time and, and our, the president of COG, which is Canu owners group is, is now a woman. Um, the president of X energy is a, is a woman and G Tachi um, Canada. So, so I, I am seeing that change. It, it, it's just been harder for us to see it in, in the utility, you know, in in the power plants. Yeah. Um, So what advice would you give to like, to a young, uh, young woman or young mother who's wanting to either start a career in um, a STEM field or a similar male dominated industry? I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first is if you're interested in, in working in STEM and in nuclear in particular right now, the opportunities are endless. Like you can get paid to learn. You can learn a trade that can take you around the world and pays well. There's so many exciting things happening right now in the industry beyond the utilities. There's SMRs, isotopes, hydrogen production, replacement of the major components of Bruce Power and, and OPG. And the leadership opportunities are also really good. You know, uh, my youngest sister is an electrical engineer and like me, Indigenous, and she has um, gone from working in the energy, energy in- industry at the ISO to becoming the president and CEO of the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Businesses. So, you know, I have an arts degree and I started in the field, like we talked about, and I ended up leading an entire crew of operators running four reactors. So the opportunities are really endless and diverse. And the second way I want to answer that question, Sheila, is uh, to moms and dads who might be listening, who perhaps want to support their daughters 
to enter the STEM field or non-male identifying children. Like connect, like there's so many groups out there, like there's unions, there's engineering societies, universities and colleges, like all of these groups will have some sort of program supporting diversity in STEM. Skills Ontario is one I recommend a lot. If, you know, if you aren't getting support you need from your local guidance counselor, like look, look somewhere else. Never too young to talk to your kids about STEM careers. Maybe they, maybe you know they, they have a friend who's in the industry. Like and and they just say, hey, can you when you're over next time, can you talk to my, uh, my kids about um, what you do and how much you love your job. Yeah. So, so there's you know like first of all, it's a great opportunity for anyone who's looking to, who's looking to have a, a career where they're going to learn and 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 make a good wage, and and also it's it's a, now's the time to talk to your kids about it. Mm-hmm. And I find that um, when I was in school and university and, you know, studying it, it used to be the thing when you would hear about a female, you know, oh, they're going to go be a car mechanic. You know, people would still do what, but it's, she's a woman. She can't do that. Like women don't do that. And now it's, you know, women are doing all kinds of things. And it wasn't that long ago I was in school and it was, longer than I think, but I don't want to talk about that. Um, you know, it was, it was the thing that, oh, you know, women in trades and now it's almost like, oh, women in trades. Yeah. Have at her. You know, you want to be an electrician, you do it. Like you do you like do it. And there was this, and this, I don't know if this was true for your generation, but definitely it was for mine. Like it was really important to my parents that all of us go to university. Um, partly because they didn't, but, but it was just like, that was seen as a successful path. And, um, I certainly don't feel that way about, you know, my, my kids, like, mm-hmm. you know, like college, if college is what works or getting a trade is what works or, or, you know, whatever, then, then, yeah. then you go it, do that. Like it was very much like that in our, I don't know about our generation as a whole, but I know like specifically with, with my family, it was a very, I don't want to, I don't want, my mom's probably going to hear this and she's going to be mad at me, but it was very <laughs> much like you go to, you go to high school you go to university, like you take the university prep classes, you go to university, you get a university degree, and then you get this good paying job with your university degree, which is fine. I followed that route. I did whatever I was supposed to do according to them. And, you know, at the end of the day, especially now when I'm at work and I'm like, the money I spent going to school compared to my coworkers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a waste of money that was like. And at the end, I'm like, I have an arts degree. I'm like, really, if I wasn't in my job, what would I be doing with my arts degree? Like nothing. I'm like, what a waste that was. Like looking back now, I'm like, I will never push my children into university if they don't want to go because no. it's just such a waste. No, like, it's not. I shouldn't say that. It's not a waste if you're wanting to do something specific that requires that degree. But just for the sake of going there, like you don't have to go to university to be successful. I don't think it's ever a waste either. I think like going to school, no matter what is always, you're always going to take away. I feel like being an arts major with a focus on like history, for example, has made me a better well-rounded person mm-hmm. compared to say some of my peer shift managers. Yeah. Well, um, and it's true. I'm very well-versed in the Canadian yeah. criminal code now because yeah. I studied yeah. that in my arts degree. Um, so, and it's so, funny yeah, the think, questions people will ask me they're like you studied law right you should know about this I'm like well hold on like yeah I was a law major and an arts degree I didn't get a yeah. BA like a bachelor of law like let's be clear yeah. about that but I do know a little bit but yeah not a total waste but it does it does definitely give you a different perspective um, yes for but sure just in I mean, terms of yeah. where I've ended up 
that like, yeah, I agree. degree. I'm like, okay, sure. I have that. And a lot of people will ask me, how did you get hired here? <laughs> Same. So we'll switch tone just a little bit. And I'm going to kind of go out on a limb and kind of ask you, I'm sure being in the industry, you you're aware of the DGR project for spent fuel through the NWMO. Like what's your take on it? Like, what is your personal take on the project? Do you mean specifically to South Bruce or in general overall? Either or. Okay, so I am, um, okay, there, there's many things I like about NWMO in their approach to the, the DGR project. And, and one of them is the long consultation process that they put in place, the use of um, an elder and youth council. And I, I do appreciate the transparency that I've seen um, whenever I've heard them speak at a you know public meeting or or at a women in nuclear function or whatever so so overall I, I would say that the organization itself um, impresses me um, secondly I feel like um, any uh, parent would say to their child you made that waste you have to deal with it and and I believe that's our responsibility as Canadians to um, deal with the with the waste that we've used to you know, power our homes and industry for, for many, many years, you know, since the 1970s. So I, I'm, I'm very, I believe in the, I believe in their, I believe in their mandate and their, and their vision. And I've been impressed with how they've gone about uh, consultation. I don't have strong feelings, uh, particularly about the two final two communities that are um, left on the list. Um, I have been to Ignis uh, as part of the Canadian Nuclear Society to deliver some education not as part as nwmo and i think that both communities have pros and cons my i guess my biggest thing is um is exactly what you're doing sheila is making sure that people are listening to the conversation and and you know making um educated uh decisions based on that including um, of course your municipality as well as um you know the the members of your municipality and i find that it's kind of funny because Willing to Listen was born out of this, I, I will continue to call it a misinformation campaign, you know, and especially as a nuclear worker, I don't know if you've ever seen the stuff that's come out, but some of the things against the project irked me to my core because mm-hmm. um, they're just not true or, you know, not accurate or however you want to describe them. So that's kind of how Willing to Listen was born. So it's it's funny to me that I always get told that you're pro DGR, we can't trust you. And lately I have been, I've never shied away from being pro-nuclear. My story now that I tell people I am pro DGR, I do think it's a good solution. I think it's safe. I don't know if I want it in South Bruce yet. I don't have enough information to know if we're a good spot. And I do think we need community members standing up and saying why they think this could be safe um, and why it could be a good thing for our community, should it, you know, continue to prove safe, continue to be environmentally sound and a good opportunity. You know, I think if, if it's not a good opportunity and it's not going to be safe for people, we don't want it either. But time will tell if that plays out or not. I agree. And, and I will just add to that. One of the misinformation things that I, I found personally upsetting was the lack of respect for those of us who work in the industry for being safe. There's nothing more important, as you know, to a nuclear worker than safety and uh, and and to be kind of accused of not putting that first, I, I found somewhat offensive. 
Yeah, I know. I, I hear that narrative a lot that nuclear workers don't really care if this is safe because they work in the industry, so they're going to do it anyway. And it always bothers me because as someone who lives in South Bruce and, you know, that the narrative is that, oh, it'll poison the water, it'll do all these. And I'm like, you think I would want to live here and let my children live here? And I would willingly do that to my own children because some industry somewhere told me that was a good idea. Like, what kind of person... And I think that's what bothers me the most. I'm like, what kind of person do you think I actually am? But it's just funny the way you get painted when you start, you know, kind of being the other side of this project. Um, yeah, and Women in Nuclear uh, talks about that a lot, right? Like, it's important for women to talk to other women who are in the industry about how safe it is. And, you know, like in my in my case, going through two pregnancies, working in the station, you know. Yeah. Um, and and not ever once um, being concerned about the safety of my of my babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I've had two pregnancies in the station too, and it's that that's the other one that got me when it was it was said that women can't live within however much of a station because it's too much if they end up pregnant or something. Too much radiation dose. I'm like, I carried two babies in <laughs> yeah, the station. Like that's not a thing. Like that's no. not true. That's the exact opposite. Or trying to explain to people how, you know, going to work, I've never actually really been that concerned about radiation. What worries me more is if a steam line breaks. Like, I'm not, I don't care about the radiation. Absolutely. I'm worried about a steam line. Like, you tell me there's a steam leak and like my ears perk up. You tell me a, there's yes, a and like whatever. As a shift manager, that, that would be, that would have been a way bigger concern for me. Yeah. Like that's what bothers me more than anything. Like radiation. That's good. We got that under control. We can manage that. Like, yeah. The steam lines are a different story, but that's getting off topic. <laughs> so throughout my experience with um, working willing to listen and kind of interviewing people with the DGR and my internet sleuthing that I do now on uh, nuclear websites and nuclear Facebook pages and stuff like that, I've noticed a lot. There seems to be a lot of distrust. I don't know if this is in general or if it's, you know, the, the Facebook personalities you know how they seem to be everywhere sometimes and they don't actually represent people but there seems to be a lot of distrust towards the nuclear industry from indigenous groups or indigenous peoples and I'm just wondering like why do you think that distrust exists and is it possible to kind of build bridge back so every first nation community is a byproduct of their history and in it you know, which, as you know, may include the residential schools, broken treaties, the Indian Act itself. So any proponent, whether it's the NWMO, who was, you know, great at their um, consultation or anyone else, is going to be greeted with mistrust. If you think about what government and corporations have brought to the First Nations in the past when, when there was trust and how many times it has been broken, you can understand why the first response is going to be mistrust. and. And a lot of that has to do with the Canadian government and the Indian Act, of course. And for the most part, the utilities that have produced nuclear waste are government owned and operated. So, for example, um, you know, Ontario Hydro, which became OPG and now is OPG and, and, and Bruce Power, NB Power, the um, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, which is federal, they're all representing government. And that, that representative has never been trustworthy when it comes to um, their dealings with First Nations. So, so I, I would say I would say that this is this is all this is 
this is just the way it's it's going to be. Now, I will add that not every First Nation is the same. It's like um, multiple different countries, you know, like um, mm-hmm. like compared to the UN. So your local First Nation will be very different and varied from one in Northern Quebec or none of it. They may have some shared history around the Indian Act or intergenerational trauma, but there may also be good examples of where engagement and collaboration worked well, uh, like in the uranium mining, mining industry in Saskatchewan. And it's been a really lengthy relationship, you know, 40 years mm-hmm. or more. So every community is going to have a different governance as well, like chief and council, maybe hereditary chiefs, elders, matriarchal led or not, nation to nation expectations. Um, if, um, you know, the First Nation has declared themselves their own nation, like in BC. So it's important to listen to all those voices. You know, in Newfoundland, um, when Newfoundland joined Canada, Joey Smallwood told the prime minister that there were no indigenous people in Newfoundland. So they were not part of the Indian Act, even though, of course, there are indigenous people in Newfoundland. Um, <laughs> they're Mi'kmaq. And so they have a whole different relationship with um, the federal government and the provincial government than any other uh, province or territory. So there's always going to be mistrust and it's going to be different levels and different kinds based on these individual histories. You know, there's some broad history, but then there's individual histories. So you want to start a relationship with the indigenous community. You know, the, the most important thing is conversation um, face to face, preferably understand the community, build a relationship and then see what happens. So, you know, you're not walking in saying, Oh, we we're we gonna, we're going to, fix this and give you this much money and work with you on this. It's going to be awesome. It's a very much collaborate, not convince or, you know, and you know, it's like when a new operator joins the crew, Sheila, and like I used to say to them, just be quiet and listen and then sit back and watch and learn, you know? Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't want to be walking in. Like you need something you're just walking in to build a relationship. And if it gets to the point where you can work together on something great, but, but that's not how you're coming to the table. There's this great quote from Selena Mills. I, I, I wrote it down. I, I just really like her. She says, we can affect real change by pushing ourselves to engage in conversations with each other. That's the goal for all of us, professionals, community members, especially if we're in positions of power to create change and understanding. Because we're all guests on this land, nobody owns her, but it's the first peoples who are her stewards and direct descendants who hold the ancestral and generic a genetic blood memory, knowledge of enriching philosophies, land-based skills, and intrinsic belief systems that future generations will depend on, regardless of cultural heritage. So that is something that, you know, if, if you as a, a member of a corporation or a community, a municipality can, can hold in your mind when you're having these conversations that, that we are here as stewards uh, and direct des- uh, descendants, but we're interested in, in working with you, that's, that's really, really important. And I, I would never say that I speak for any, like San, obviously, or my own First Nation, Nipissing. These are just my ideas about how, how you start those conversations. Right. And, and it can be, I think, intimidating for a lot of people to try to have those conversations. I know I work with a member of San and him and I, <laughs> I laugh because we're, we're both pretty, uh, we're both pretty strong-minded and we speak what we think and uh we butt heads sometimes but I like we always come out of it we're still friends like we're still you know 
it is what it is. And the things that he's taught me through like talking to him, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. And you know, it's in, he's encouraged me to read books about, you know, like the Indian Act. I read that, um, what is it called? 21 things you didn't know about the Indian Act. And some of that in that book is ridiculous. Like, I can't even believe that's a thing that they did to people. Like, it's, I just, my mind gets blown. And then it's like, I don't know how to broach the subject, right? I'm like, I don't know yeah, how to yeah. do that because you don't want to come off as insensitive. You know, you don't want to come off like that, but you also do want to learn. And it's, it's that tricky road for people. And I think a lot of people just don't know how to walk it. They don't know what they're supposed to say or do or ask or what they shouldn't ask. And yeah, it, it's just, it is complicated. And I think, I think what you said about, you know, the new operator, you come in and you be quiet and you listen and kind of feel it out is, is a really good analogy for that. Cause I, I know we've had new operators who do come in and they're quiet and they listen and they tend to fit in and get along better in the long run than the ones who come in with, you know, attitude and personality mm -hmm. blazing in your face. And you're like, whoa, whoa, back up. <laughs> Isn't that the case? Isn't that you are too much. Like yeah. you need to back up a little bit. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's a really good analogy. I like that. The NWMO has been doing a lot of really what I consider pretty good reconciliation work from what I can see. Um, how could a municipality and the residents of a municipality work towards those same goals of reconciliation? I guess, especially residents, like what can, what can we do when we're not part of, you know, an, a formal organization? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. And so there's a couple of, um, I have a couple of recommendations. So there's 94 calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And, and to be honest with you, to read the actual calls to action, to read the whole report is a bit overwhelming, but to read the actual calls to action, it's about six pages. And so okay. I would encourage all municipalities, but anybody to read those 94 calls to action. There are some specific calls to action that I think are um, applicable to say municipalities. They're 43, 47, 57, and 92. And I'll just briefly, you know, so 43 is basically, you know, asking your municipality to adopt the um, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as the framework for their own reconciliation. Calling and then sort of reaching out to governments themselves to, you know, challenge concepts used to justify European sovereignty over Indigenous people lands and and reform those laws, government policies, et cetera. You would appreciate those litigation strategies too. And then another one is to provide education to public servants on the history of Aboriginal peoples. So that would include municipal councillors and municipal staff, um, including the history and legacy of residential schools, the Indian Act that we talked about, treaty history, and that sort of thing. So, so this would be you know, skills-based training that, that anyone could take. As an individual, I would say, learn what your land acknowledgement would be. So, you know, there's a great um, website called uh, Our Native Land, where you can go and see where you live and, and who lived there uh, before you. And think about that if you're leading a meeting or having a, a public open uh, conversation at, at a meeting or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, does that website actually like it will give you a script on what you would say or because that's what I struggle with because I've often thought like oh I should be I should be doing a land acknowledgement when we do you know a meeting but I'm like I have no idea how to do one and I would hate to screw it up that's what I worry about I don't want to like I don't want to attempt to do something and then it backfire because I messed it up that's what I worry about I think you're not alone 
it will show you on a map where you are and you are in i can tell you you are in Saugeen Ojibwe Nation territory and then you, if you go to their web page it it will tell you what they use and then of course there's also uh this this particular area is also traditionally um an area of of, of the metis as well but you can decide what you use the most important thing i always say about land acknowledgement is that it's said with sincerity you know, it's, it doesn't have to be perfect. You can always reach out to a, an elder um, for advice. They're mostly, mostly their advice is keep it simple. I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. To be sincere and then to think about that land acknowledgement in your the discussions that follow after. So, for example, it's not just rote speech. It's, it's, it's oh, can I use the indigenous teachings that I admire in helping helping this conversation or making decisions or whatever it may be. Do you know what I mean? Like yep. to think about that, what does that really mean? Not just to mm-hmm. read it off piece of paper. Yeah. And I, tr- I try to be pretty cognizant of like what I say and how I say it. The, the mm-hmm. one other call to action I just want to mention quickly is 92. So 92 is the business. It's a, it's, it's an action on business. On businesses and i just want to mention that because any municipality can act on this action so so basically what it does the what it does is it calls on corporate canada to adopt as i said the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous people as their framework for reconciliation but i just want to be more specific what that means is that there's minimal meaningful consultation with indigenous peoples we ensure there's access to jobs training education initiate programs to educate and inform corporate canada you know, in 2019, the government of Canada committed to create more opportunities for Indigenous businesses to succeed and grow by creating a new target to have at least 5% of federal contracts awarded to businesses managed and led by Indigenous people. And what I would like to see is corporations and businesses and companies try to follow in that path. You know, yeah. I think that, you know, that it, that's definitely something that you can see happening in the nuclear industry around around here. And, and sort of an expectation and challenge from the leaders in the industry. But any business can think about that. Do you know what I mean? Any business can think, is there an Indigenous business that I can support when I'm buying this supply? You know, maybe it's PPE, maybe it's paper, maybe it's um, catering, you know, whatever. Maybe it's coffee. Like, right. is there some way that I can help with what I like to call the economic reconciliation, which is really where the difference will be made? Right. That's really where you will see where you will see a difference is, is when, you know, when we spend the money, basically. And I don't just mean the government. I mean, mm-hmm. the country. Yeah. And I, I find um, when you mentioned the meaningful consultation portion, I think that's also so this is also my opinion. I could be totally wrong. But like, I feel like that's so important because for so long there was no consultation whatsoever. Right. It was this is what we're doing. Take it. You know, like this is you don't get a choice in this. And I do think it's really important to open up those lines of communication and make sure, you know, that we're not just enacting things because we can, you know, we need to actually talk to people. I think that plays into some of the nuclear stuff too. You know, that lack of consultation for so long that it's, I sometimes wonder if, you know, the nuclear industry kind of steamrolled people and they were like, Hey, this is what we're doing. Good luck. You know, and that, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's hanging in there, you know, and I, and I, 
I get that when it comes to nuclear things. It's very heated because for so long they just did whatever they wanted. You know, the nuclear industry just did whatever that's they right. wanted. That, that's um, absolutely that's absolutely true. Built whatever they wanted, yeah. wherever they wanted. Yeah, without, and then I, I think any, that makes without any consultation at all. Yeah, and then I think that makes it harder now too for the industry. Not not by any means sticking out for them, but you know now they're in this place where kind of their their business is having to change, right? Because they can't just do what they want. They have to get. Um, you know, Indigenous peoples and municipalities on board. And I think that's a weird dynamic maybe for the industry to tackle too, because they, it's fairly new, you know, that they have to do that. So I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a power struggle almost, you know, where the industry thinks they can do that because they always have, and they're hitting this wall now because they're not, they can't, like, it's not right. And people are saying, no, you can't. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a big hill to climb. But um, yeah, I, 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 Murray Sinclair puts it very well. You know, he says, we uncovered the mountain and we wrote you the path. It's your job to climb it. Right. And uh, I think that that's especially true when it comes to um, the, you know, the pieces in particular about residential schools. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's a, yeah, that's a tough one. I know I've struggled with that one myself. I've got a whole bookshelf of books people have told me to read that I'm losing track of how many are on there the book five little indians about the people oh, yes. who oh my gosh i like read that and i was like this is intense it, it, yeah yeah it's it's heavy yeah michelle good is the author yes yes but yeah it's it's heavy but i think it's it's things too like that that people need to be willing to you know read about and learn about you know it's, it's you might feel history. like you're on topic Sheila, but you've kind of looped back, right? It's another yeah. thing that people can do, right? Yeah. It's hard to pick up, pick up those books that yeah. are hard to read. And yeah. And like, it's heavy. Like, I can't lie. It's heavy. Yeah, it is. But I think it's important that we aren't just aware that it happened, but be aware of what kinds of things actually happened. You know, yeah. it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I know about that. There's three ways to know about it. You can, oh yeah, I've heard about it. Oh yeah. I, I've done a lot of research on it. Or there's the unfortunate incidences of we lived it i think reading those hard books are the closest we're going to get to ever knowing well i'll be honest with you that there's not <laughs> not an indigenous person who who has not been affected by residential schools in some yeah. way or another so as an indigenous woman how do you balance your cultural beliefs with your support for the nuclear industry i had to think about this uh I, like thank you for sending me these questions beforehand most of them i can kind of answer off the top of my head, but I really had to think about this one. One of the things that I have always done is in my leadership is, you know, thinking about the seven grandfather teachings, which, you know, as an indigenous leader starts with accepting every employee as a whole person, including a real respect of the understanding of the importance of family and community, making space for family, wellness, and connection to the land as part of that employee's success and well-being, I guess, is, is the right way to say that. That's, but that's specific to um, how I try to, to lead. In the nuclear industry, Indigenous culture um, clash, I guess we'll call it, one of the things I've, I've always tried to do is use my voice to communicate in both ways. So on both sides, maybe is a better way to put that. So, it, you know, communicating to the industry how to best uh, develop a relationship with Indigenous um, people, where they are coming from with their mistrust, as you've asked me about already, or um, the history of, say, the local area, 
if I happen to know, I mean, I know a little bit about the local area here because I have many relatives who belong to San. And then in the other way, you know, on the Indigenous side to have conversations with my cousins and family um, and friends who want to understand more about nuclear and what is the safety like and what do I actually do and tell me about the waste. You know, the waste is the most difficult thing to talk about with anybody who who wants to know about nuclear. I would say like we have a great safety record as far as conventional safety as we've talked about um, radiation safety, we have, we're a great industry for climate change. Uh, the waste is the is the hard one. So being able to have those facts at hand about this is how much power we make, this is how much waste we create, as compared to say coal or oil and gas or even wind or solar. Solar. I think those are things that are helpful. But just to have those conversations in little snippets, like not going in like I already talked about. You know, here's here's how it works and. I'm going to wow you with my facts. It's more like, here's what I actually do for a living. Mm-hmm. Here's how safe I feel. Here's how comfortable I feel living in this community besides, beside a nuclear plant. More like the making the story more personal always makes it, you know, more palpable, I think, to, mm-hmm. to family, friends, you know, or just someone you happen to chat with, uh, you know, on the street or, or whatever the case may be. So, so I think that's what I, how I balanced it, you know, I would say this generation, and I'm talking probably, you know, your generation, my and my kids who are in their uh, 20s, I think is really interested in reconciliation, education and understanding. I mean, that's why you're here. That's why you're asking me these questions. So the time is now to really talking about it and taking action. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, these conversations are happening more and more. I, I'm being asked to have these conversations more and more by, you know, different people. And I, I think that really shows that people are re- truly interested in reconciliation and having those conversations, which I also feel uh, First Nation people, I mean, being a First Nation person myself, Indigenous woman, and talking to my family members about it, you know, we're all feeling that. We're all feeling that change. Let's keep it going, I guess, is my I guess is my mm-hmm. my words, like, Let's keep that conversation going and keep that uh, idea about economic development and reconciliation and, and inclusion part of our everyday conversation. And one other thing I would say is I, I consistently point that out. I consistently point that out when, it, when it's happening and mm-hmm. how happy I am it's happening and when it isn't. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's those tough conversations that I think need to happen as much as they can be uncomfortable, I think. Those usually are the the ones that need to happen the most. The ones that are really uncomfortable to have are usually the ones that need to be had. So the last question, just to kind of wrap it up, is do you think that it's possible for harmony to exist in in general terms between Indigenous culture and beliefs and the nuclear industry? Like, do you do you see a scenario or a future where the two can? I do. Be I do. You know, yeah. You know, the idea that First Nations people are against progress or projects is a common misconception. There is a trust issue, which we talked about kind of ad nauseum, but First Nation, you know, communities are interested in progress and, and, and we just have to remember that their lens is different. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like an illusion, a meme where, where you're looking at something through a light and it's a square. And then when you go around to the other side, it turns into a circle. It, it's both are true. But they yep. come from totally different sides. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's some really good examples. Uh, and we've kind of talked about the NWMO and, and their um, advisory council of elders and youth. And they 
They are guided by the seven teachings, which I've talked about, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which is our regulator. They offer participation funding program. So mm-hmm. Indigenous communities can access any expert, any experts they choose to. You know, there's other projects in the province and in the country where, you know, that aren't nuclear per se, but there's been great partner, partnering between, you know, OPG and First Nations out um, west, the First Nation Power Authority. You know, Bruce Power has a partnership with Sagin Ojibwe-Nation uh, right now on the distribution of a new isotope, plutetium-177, mm-hmm. which which will be produced in the reactors. So so the, there's these, these types of opportunities, I think, where corporations are creating like long-term revenue strategies and, and transferable skills, you know, there's, there's long-term positive impact for those communities. And so it, I, I say yes, not just because I believe it's possible, but because I also see it already happening in maybe not so much in as much in the nuclear world at this point, but it's starting to. Mm-hmm. So any, any business, you know, can ensure that they're using indigenous businesses when they can and setting an expectation with their suppliers you know, supporting Indigenous employees. So I think that, I think the nuclear industry is doing that. Like I see more and more of that. Um, I think next step is um, let's get some Indigenous senior leadership. Let's make sure we have Indigenous representation on our board of directors. And I'm seeing that happen around the company, around the country, I mean, as well. But I would like to see more of that in the nuclear sector. Diversity, as I I mentioned, kind of off the top there, Sheila, makes a difference for so many reasons in, in our industry. Like I said, the bottom line, reputation, you know, knowledge and respect. And uh, if we can kind of have that throughout, if we can kind of have that from the top down, mm-hmm. I think that makes a difference when, when you're talking to Indigenous communities, you know, when they see people who look like them leading the industry. Yeah. And it, even just bringing the different perspectives to the table, right? We don't, we don't need the old white boys club making all the decisions for everybody you know they they don't know what's best for everyone even though sometimes they believe that they do and and but more importantly i would say uh, along the indigenous piece i really i really encourage people to um start their own path to reconciliation if that means reading the reading the 94 calls to action if that means educating like reading books like you're doing sheila just start the conversation start start learning and and um and you know that that'll be the beginning of um, what what I'm hoping is is going to kickstart a real change in in the relationship. Yeah, I agree. We all just have to take little steps. That's right. <laughs> Start taking the little steps to make big change. Okay. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm